One of the things that characterizes us as Americans, and this is probably true of many other people groups around the world, but maybe especially us as Americans, is the fact that we think that the way we do things in our culture is the best way. Our way is the best way. When Americans travel abroad, rarely do we come home saying, you know, the way they do things in such and such a place is better than the way we do them here. We tend to think our language is the best, our culture is the best, our system is the best, etc. There's one other particular I want to mention because it leads right into our message, and it is this. Most Americans believe that our system of courtship is better than all others. Our system, of course, is you choose who you want to date and marry. That's the way we do it. When Americans hear about arranged marriages by parents, they panic. We think our way is so much better, but frankly, look at the results. Over 40% of all first marriages end in divorce in our country. Over 60% of all second marriages end in divorce. And over 80% of all third marriages end in divorce in our country. I would submit to you that our way is not necessarily the best way. Now, my purpose in saying all all of this is not to debate with anyone the merits or, or pitfalls of any system of romance, dating, courtship, or marriage. My goal is simply to cause us not to be prejudiced against or closed-minded toward the way things were done in Old Testament times. And the reason why I want to at least put that pause in your mind is because the book we come to in this study is a beautiful love story, but if our attitudes are, our way is the only way, our way is the best way, then we won't be able to really appreciate this story. The book I'm referring to, of course, is the book of Ruth. Let's turn there together, if you're not already there, in Hebrew Scripture, the little book of Ruth. The book of Ruth has been called an interlude of love set in the period of the judges in Israel. If you are here for our look at the book of Judges, then you know that it was a despicable time in Israel's history. It was their dark ages. That time was characterized by idolatry, immorality, lawlessness, lewdness, and war, just to name a few things. The key phrase or sentence for that book is, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like America, does it not? Just do your own thing. Do whatever you want to do. So the time of Judges was a bleak, dreary, and dismal time. But the book of Ruth stands out as a bright and shining exception to all of that. As one man put it, quote, it shows an oasis of faithfulness in an age marked by idolatry and unfaithfulness, end quote. The book of Ruth is an old-fashioned love story. Now the purpose of this story is not to prescribe for us how we should go about getting married or choosing a partner for marriage. The book is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, it describes for us what happened in the life of a woman named Ruth, but the point of the book is not to tell us how to carry out dating, courtship, marriage, etc. This is where a lot of people get confused when it comes to studying the Bible and applying the Bible. 
They fail to make a distinction between what is prescriptive in Scripture and what is descriptive in Scripture. For example, most of what we have been studying in this series through the Old Testament has been descriptive, not prescriptive. For example, when we read about God telling the children of Israel how to carry out their sacrifices, we should not assume that we should start carrying out animal sacrifices. Those passages were prescriptive for the children of Israel because they were under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. But according to Jesus, we are not under the Old Covenant, we're under the New Covenant. So those passages are not prescriptive for us, they are descriptive for us. There are many things we can learn from all of these books in Hebrew Scripture, and hopefully we have been learning and applying along the way, but it's important to remember that for us, the Old Covenant is descriptive and instructive, not prescriptive. Let me see if I can illustrate this so we can get a better handle on it. Let's say you were to take a class from the university or from the Bible college. The the first day of class, you would be given a syllabus. In that syllabus, there would be a list of course requirements that tell you what you need to do to do well in the class. It would also tell you how you should do the assignments. For For instance, it might say that all papers should be typed or all papers should be double-spaced, etc. So, once you have the syllabus, you know all you need to know to do well in the course. Then let's say that a month or so into the course, the professor comes to class one day and says, I have decided to do things differently now from this point on, so here is a new syllabus for you as a student. Now that you have a new syllabus, how much of the old syllabus are you obligated to follow? There are two correct answers to that question. One answer that is correct would be the answer, none. None of it. You're not responsible for anything in the old syllabus because you have been given a new syllabus, and this is what is required of you now. You are now responsible for the assignments in the new syllabus. Another correct answer to the question, how much of the old syllabus are you responsible for, is you are responsible for whatever is reiterated in the new syllabus that comes out of the old syllabus. You know as well as I do that if a professor gave you a new syllabus part of the way through the semester, it wouldn't be completely different than the first one. Some of the requirements would be the same. Some of the assignments would be the same. And even those that were different, such as maybe a different topic for a paper, would have a lot of things in common with the first assignment. Therefore, you would still be wise to type and double-space your paper because you know that's what the professor likes. The old syllabus would help you get to know your professor and what he is like. Do you see the parallels between the the illustration and our, our approach to Scripture? God gave a covenant to the children of Israel. They were responsible for everything in that covenant. How they planted their fields, what kind of clothing they would wear on their bodies, every little detail. They were responsible for everything in that covenant. The night before his death, Jesus said he instituted a new covenant. He would be instituting one or uh, inaugurating one the next day. Therefore, we are no longer under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. The New Testament states this repeatedly. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. 
The new covenant has different requirements than the old covenant. You're not in sin if you wear a piece of clothing, a garment that has two types of material, 50% wool, 50% cotton, or 50% polyester. Under old covenant, you would be in sin, not under the new covenant. So the new covenant has different requirements than the old covenant, but there are quite a few things that are the same. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Besides, the old covenant is profitable because it helps us to get to know our God and what he is like. That's the relationship between the Old and New Testaments and how we relate to them as believers under the New Covenant. So I'll say it again. The Old Testament is descriptive for us, and the New Testament is prescriptive for us. That's important to keep in mind as we come to the book of Ruth and see this beautiful description of how God sovereignly worked in the life of this dear woman. As I mentioned a moment ago, the context of this story is the time of the judges. That was the time of national faithlessness, national unfaithfulness. But Ruth proved to be a woman of faithfulness in many ways, and God rewarded her for her faithfulness. So let's turn to chapter 1 to begin our consideration of this refreshing story, especially coming off our look at the book of Judges and the time of Judges. Verse 1 tells us, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the book opens by giving us the context and the setting of the story. It says there was a famine in the land. We might easily pass over that and not catch the significance, but any Jewish person reading this book should have and probably would have caught the significance. You see, according to Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, a famine in Israel was a sign of disobedience and apostasy. Because God said to the people of Israel that when they obeyed him, he would always give them rain for their crops. He would keep away the locusts. He would always bless their, their crops, their food, etc. So when we read that there's a famine in the land, that tells us that the people of Israel were in disobedience and apostasy. It's exactly what this era was characterized by, as we saw in our look at the book of Judges. The days of the Judges were a time of apostasy, warfare, decline, violence, moral decay, and anarchy. The writer doesn't want us to forget about that because it forms the black backdrop that he's going to place this beautiful diamond upon for it to shine forth. Verse 2 we read, the name of the man was Elimelech, or more a Hebrew pronunciation, Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. The meanings of each of these names is a fascinating part of this story. It is obvious that the writer is giving significance to that. We're not reading something in that, that really isn't there. Elimelech, or Elimelech, means my God is king. El, God, E, my, Melech, king. My God is king, Elimelech, or Elimelech. Naomi means pleasant. Maklon means sick or puny. How would you like that for a name? You know, you're, 
You're a son, you're born, and your parents name you Maklon, you know, sick or puny. Kilion means pining. And the word Bethlehem, literally in Hebrew, Beit Lechem, means house of bread. So the, the writer of this story wants us to see the story, even in the names of the individuals in the story. You could say it this way. Elimelech, who claimed God as his king, took his pleasant wife and two sickly sons and moved away from the house of bread to find food in the land of Moab, but all they found was death. We read in verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Machlon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. It's a tragic story at this point. This pleasant woman named Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons, the men in her life. But she didn't realize just what she had in one of her daughters-in-law. One of her daughters-in-law was named Ruth, which means friendship, and Ruth turned out to be the embodiment of loyal friendship. We read in verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. What she was saying was this, you have been good to me and you have been good to my sons, so may the Lord bless each of you. Now return to your home and may the Lord repay you for your kindness to my sons by being good wives to my sons and for your kindness to me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. In other words, she is saying, may you each find a second husband. Remember, there was no security for an unmarried woman in those days. No such thing as social security or any other sort of safety net economically, socially. So Naomi was wishing the right things for her daughters-in-law in this parting of ways. May, you each, may God grant that you each find another husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth was true to her name. She was more than just a daughter-in-law to Naomi. She was bound and determined to be the friend this grieving woman needed. But Naomi tried to convince her otherwise. Verse 15 tells us, 
And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is a monumental statement by Ruth. Remember, she was a Moabite woman. The Moabites worshipped Chemish and other pagan gods. But here Ruth was pledging her allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. You could call this Ruth's profession of faith right here. This is her profession of faith. Your God is my God. The God of Israel is my God. I'm not returning back to my people and my gods. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord, notice she uses God's personal name, Yahweh, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. So Ruth won the argument with her mother-in-law. Verse 19 tells us, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The word Mara means bitter. So Naomi told them to call her Mara because she felt like she had been treated bitterly in the circumstances of life. Verse 21, I went out full And the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This last phrase sets us up for what's about to happen in chapter 2. Verse 1 tells us there was a relative of Naomi's uh, husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Gleaning was a common practice for the poor during this time. In fact, the law of God in Leviticus 19 and 23 commanded that the corners of the fields not be reaped so that the poor people of the land could glean those parts for themselves. So Ruth, because she and Naomi were poor, decided to go out to reap so they would have something to eat, so they would have some food. We read in verse 3, Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Before we go on, notice that little phrase, she happened to come. That's the way it's translated in mine, maybe differently in your English translation. But literally it reads this way, her chance chanced upon. But the verse isn't saying that anything happened by chance. This is a way for the writer to say that in the sovereign providence and working of God... Ruth came to the field of Boaz, Naomi's relative. And because Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law, Boaz was her relative also. Verse 4 tells us, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. 
Boaz, as you'll see by the time we're finished, was a godly man of integrity. You can see a glimpse of that here as he wished God's best to the reapers and as they returned the gracious gesture to him. He's quite a man, and that becomes clear as the story unfolds. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little while in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. You see, in that day, gleaning was often a dangerous endeavor for a young single woman. So Boaz was, in essence, promising to protect Ruth and provide for her, to care for her. And Ruth was overwhelmed by his graciousness because, after all, he didn't know her and have any interest in her. Besides, she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Moabite or a Moabitess, feminine. Yet he extended kindness and graciousness to her. In verse 10, she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Boaz was impressed with Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law and that was a big part of why he was extending such graciousness to her. He also wanted to commend her for her allegiance to the true God, the God of Israel. And so in verse 12 we read, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Ruth recognized the magnitude of Boaz's benevolence. She wasn't one of his servants. She wasn't one of his employees. Yet he treated her above and beyond what was due to her. Verse 14 tells us, Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in, in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she arose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. As Dr. Ryrie points out in his footnote, this would have been enough to feed herself and Naomi for about five days. So she has labored hard. She has labored diligently, gathered a lot of, of food for her and her for her and Naomi for the next five days. Verse 18 says, Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now everything in this chapter has taken place over a period of a few months. But as we move into chapter 3, everything that is recorded here takes place in one day. So the story slows down. Do you remember chapter 1 mentioned 10 years they were in Moab, and now a few months, and now one day is the focus. And what a day this was. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, verse 1, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garments and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. Now, why in the world did Naomi suggest that Ruth do such a strange thing like this? And exactly what is Naomi telling Ruth to do? To understand what takes place here, we have to understand how God instructed the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy 25. So go back with me to the fifth book of Hebrew Scripture, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 5. We read these instructions. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. What a name. The house of him who had his sandal removed. Well, these verses were God's instruction to the children of Israel concerning leveret marriage. That's what it's called. The purpose of this kind of marriage was twofold. One, it was designed to prevent extinction of a family name in Israel. You saw that as I read those verses. Keeping all the names, all the lineage within Israel. Secondly, it was designed to provide security for a woman who lost her husband because, as I mentioned earlier, there was no security for an unmarried woman in those days. 
Now, let me remind you of how he began this message. Just because we don't do things this way today, we dare not cast a judgment on this practice. Our way of doing things is not the only way or even necessarily the best way of doing things. God knew what he was talking about. This is how things worked in this culture. Now back to the book of Ruth. You may have noticed as we read through those verses in Deuteronomy that the widow was the one to take the initiative in leveret marriage. So what Naomi was telling Ruth to do here in chapter 3 was to take the initiative in seeking this kind of leveret marriage, and that would provide her the security mentioned in verse 1, where Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? So Ruth did just that. Skip down to verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman was lying at his feet. Now that would startle anyone. You go to sleep alone, by yourself, you wake up in the middle of the night, and there's a woman lying at your feet. Boaz was also probably startled because the reason he was sleeping by the grain was to protect it. This is the way they protected their harvest. From thieves, people would come in. He wanted to be right there with it. So when he woke up and someone was by his feet, he probably assumed that someone was trying to sneak away some grain, steal the harvest. Verse 9 tells us, Now it happened at midnight, or that's verse 8, verse 9, and, and he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Hebrew here is, you are a redeemer, kinsman redeemer. Ruth was asking Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. That is, a, that is the key word or phrase to remember in connection with the book of Ruth. Kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer had to be related to those he redeemed. He had to be able to pay the price of redemption. Thirdly, he had to be willing to redeem. And fourthly, he had to be free himself. Boaz was all of the above. And so in verse 10, then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. The reason Boaz makes this statement is, is because he was older than Ruth, maybe by 20 years. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. This posed a problem. Because the nearest relative had the right to be the kinsman redeemer if he so desired. That was stated in the law of God. So there's a problem. Verse 13, he says, Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz said this because he didn't want 
unfounded rumors going around about them engaging in, in immorality. Nothing of the sort took place. Verse 15, also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. In other words, hold it out, this, this garment. And when she held it out, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So the story is building to a suspenseful climax as we come to chapter 4, verse 1. We read, Now Boaz went up to the gate. Remember what we saw in Deuteronomy? That's where the legal transaction had to take place. He went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. The city gate is where official legal business transactions would take place, and Boaz wanted some witnesses for what was going to take place. Verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I, bought, and I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the other relative was going to purchase the land of Elimelech until he found out that he would also need to marry and support the widow, Ruth. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you must buy it. You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his, his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel. Here we have sort of a little editorial note by the writer. He says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. It's basically the way they signed the contract. Took off his sandal. Verse 9, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Machlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his, pe and, and his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor, uh, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a great story. God rewarded Ruth with a loving husband, security, a son, and the marvelous privilege of being in the line of King David. And that means she was also in the line of our Lord, who is from the seed of David. And that is why the book closes with a genealogy. Verse 18 says, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. The genealogy was always traced to the man and his family name, as we see here. But it is interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, Ruth is listed in the genealogy of our Lord. Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6 say, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. You could almost say that the book of Ruth is a rags to riches story. Because Ruth came to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law Naomi and they were destitute. But by the end of the story, Ruth has married a godly, wealthy man and she became part of the royal line. It's a marvelous story portrait of God's grace. So what can we learn from the book of Ruth? Quickly, I want to give you just four sort of bullet point applications. Four categories of application. Historical, doctrinal, moral, and theological. Number one, historically, the book of Ruth provides a bridge between the judges and the monarchy. The very last word in this book is David. So the book opens in the time of the judges and closes by giving us a genealogy of David. Second, doctrinally, the book of Ruth teaches that the Gentiles are not outside of the scope of redemption. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite woman. She was not an Israelite. Does that mean she couldn't be right with God? Absolutely not. God's grace is not restricted to any race, any nation, any people group. Back in chapter 1, Ruth affirmed her devotion to the true God, the God of Israel, and Yahweh included her in his family. The same thing is still true today. It doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. It doesn't matter what you have done. If you will turn to the God of heaven, he will accept you. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. The Lord won't cast you out if you will genuinely turn to him in repentance and humility. Thirdly, morally, the story of Ruth communicates high ideals of integrity in relationships and marriage. Ruth was loyal to her mother-in-law. She behaved herself with integrity in her relationship with Boaz. There's a lot we can learn about relationships from Ruth's example. And fourthly, theologically, the story of Ruth illustrates for us the work of Christ on our behalf as our kinsman redeemer. 
As we saw earlier, the kinsman redeemer had to be related by blood to those he redeemed. Secondly, he had to be able to pay the price of redemption. Thirdly, he had to be willing to, to redeem. And fourthly, he had to be free himself. As you well know, the Lord Jesus was all of those. All of those. He was related to us by blood because he became a man and entered the human race. The word became flesh. Secondly, he was able to pay the price of redemption by shedding his blood in death. Thirdly, he was willing to redeem us. He said, no one takes my life from me. I, I give it up willingly. I lay it down willingly. Fourthly, he was free himself. He was free from sin, free from the curse of sin. Paul said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Ruth is a great love story, but it pales in comparison to the story of God's love for us, his people. We were not only destitute like Ruth, according to Romans 5, we were God's enemies. Yet he loved us and redeemed us with the precious blood of Christ. Let's thank him together. Please bow with me. Father, we must confess that we are amazed at your ways. We look at this story, other stories in Hebrew Scripture in the New Testament, and no wonder the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11, Oh, the depth, both of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We, we can't trace your hand in life, why you do what you do, how you work the way you work. No wonder it is such a common saying among your people that the Lord works in mysterious ways. We see that in a marvelous way here in the book of Ruth. Thank you for your grace to this dear woman, your work in the line of your son, Messiah Jesus, the powerful picture of the kinsman redeemer and the love of the Lord Jesus for us, his people, his willingness to redeem us, his ability to re redeem us, and his act of redeeming us. We are humbled by your love for us and his work on our behalf as we pray in his name. Amen.